Hi, I'm Pastor Kyle Carlson, and you're listening to a message from Imprint Community Church in Northeast Baltimore. I pray that this message will encourage you in your walk with Jesus Christ. Visit us online at imprintcommunity.org and worship with us in person on Sundays at 10 a.m. at Seven Oaks Elementary School. Enjoy the message. Well, I hope you've enjoyed seeing this graphic for the past 19 months. This is the last, this is the last day you'll see it. Because today we complete our series in the Gospel of John, Life in His Name. And so we actually completed the text of the Gospel last week. And so I figured we would do a, an overview message of the Gospel of John. So the entire book in one sermon. The entire book of John in one message. And so obviously that creates a challenge For me, as I'm trying to decide how to organize 21 chapters of Holy Spirit-inspired content and deliver it to you in just a few minutes. And so I could think of no better organizing principle than the purpose statement that John himself gives us in chapter 20. Verses 30 and 31, verses you're well familiar with by now, as we also read them in our benediction each week. So that verse, for, as a reminder, says this, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That is the reason John wrote the gospel. And I think he gives us a pretty nice three-part outline in this statement. So if you look at that statement, you'll see, number one, he tells us why we should believe. Namely, I've written these signs, these miraculous signs of Jesus, so that you may believe. Okay, so the signs are supposed to give us ground for belief, why we should believe. Then he tells us what we should believe. You see there, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. So the identity of Jesus, who is Jesus, is at the center of what he's after. So he's, he tells us what we should believe, and then he basically tells us what will happen as a result of our Believing, you see that last phrase, that by believing, you may have life in his name. So he gives us these three points, if you will. Why should you believe? What should you believe? And what are the results of believing? So that's how we're going to take this and just an overview of all the content of John's gospel on these three rungs, if you will. We're going to hang the rest of the content on these three hooks. So number one, why should you believe? He doesn't just say believe. He doesn't just make this bold demand like believe in this and that's how you'll have life and then just expect us to follow along. No, he gives us substantial proof, doesn't he? Throughout the gospel, he's not like one of those guys who says, oh, believe me, I know what I'm talking about. And you have very little confidence that this guy actually knows what he's talking about. John says, don't just take my word for it. Here are the signs. Here are the things that Jesus did that point to 
and undergird his identity, that tell us who he is. And so he gives us ample reason for belief in Jesus Christ, which is good for us to remember that the Christian faith is not this blind, willy-nilly feeling of I just hope that it's true or I feel like it's right. There are reasons to believe in Jesus Christ. It is a reasonable faith. Now, he specifically gives us these reasons in the form of seven miraculous signs that all took place within the first 12 chapters. You might remember from earlier in our discussions of John that John's gospel is divided into two halves, basically. Chapters 1 through 12 is often called the book of signs, and that is where John records these seven miraculous signs. And then chapters 13 through 21 are often called the book of glory, which concern the glorification of Christ in his passion, that is, in his journey to the cross and in his resurrection. So in the so-called book of signs, chapters 1 through 12, John records for us seven miraculous signs. And he tells us very plainly in his purpose statement in chapter 20, this is not all that Jesus did. Right? He did other stuff that I didn't write about. But here are seven of them that I've written for you to have ground, reason to believe in Jesus Christ. And I see these seven signs in kind of three categories. So we're going to go a little out of order as we overview these seven signs. Number one, Jesus demonstrates that he has authority over nature. Jesus has authority over nature. We see that in his very first public miracle in John chapter 2, where at a wedding in Cana, he turned water into wine, right? He took water that was in these Jewish purification jars for the ritual of outward cleansing that they would have to go through. He took water from these purification jars and replaced it miraculously with wine, which I believe was a symbol of the new covenant that Jesus would inaugurate with his blood. He would shed his blood for a once and for all cleansing from sin. And so in this first public miracle, he takes the molecules of water and changes them at will, transforms them into wine, actual fermented wine. In John chapter 6, he walks on water. So these first two have to do with water. He takes the, the, the characteristics and the molecules of water and changes them into something else. Then in John chapter 6, as the disciples are out on a boat crossing the lake, Jesus comes to them walking upon the water. And there's a storm going on. So you can't even make the argument that the sea was just so smooth that he could just sort of glide along it. Not that I could do that anyway. But the, it was a storm-tossed sea and he is walking upon the waves to the disciples. And if you just think about that, if you just think about the power of water, like we think we've got it under control, right? We've got pipes and reservoirs and, uh, you know, and, and faucets. And so we have it under control and we harness it in the ways that we need and we use it all the time. And so it's easy to think, yeah, we've got water under control. But anytime something goes wrong, a pipe breaks a reservoir overflows. We get more rain than we can handle. Think about ships on the ocean, the classic Titanic, where there's a crack in the ship. We have no control. Water is this amazing, unbridled force of nature that when we are face-to-face -face with it in its power, we are weak, we are feeble, we are helpless. But Jesus, 
walks on it, transforms it. We know in another place, he even tells a storm to stop and the waves chill out. This Jesus has authority over the unbridled forces of nature like you and I simply do not have. He also demonstrates his authority over nature when he feeds thousands of people with one small lunch. It tells us that there was a crowd of 5,000. That probably only included the, the men in the group. So if you count their wives and children, it's probably somewhere in between 10 and 15,000. So thousands of people are gathered, and Jesus has the disciples round up some food, and they go, well, they found this one kid that had a couple of loaves of bread and a few fish. And Jesus said, all right, hand it out. And they just kept handing it out. And every time they, I don't even know how that works, right? I, Every time they reached back into the basket, there was another piece of bread to give out. And they didn't just break it off into tiny pieces so that everybody had a little tiny crumb of it. Everybody ate and was full. That's what John tells us. They had their fill of the food, and then they collected leftovers from one kid's lunch. Jesus has authority over nature, over the molecules and the the matter that make up our universe, Jesus demonstrates he has authority over that just by virtue of who he is. So why should you believe? Number one, Jesus has authority over nature. Another reason to believe is that Jesus has authority over sickness and health. In John chapter 4, we met an official, a Roman official of some kind, who had a sick child in a neighboring town. So he traveled to Jesus, and he said, please heal my son. I know that if you say the word, he will be healed. And Jesus says, go, your son is well. And the man travels back home, the day or two distance, and he, asks, and he finds his son as well. And he asks his servants, when did he get better? And in kind of trying to figure out when it happened, he was able to piece together, it was the moment when Jesus said, go, your son is well. Jesus doesn't even have to be in his presence. Jesus doesn't have to touch him. Jesus doesn't have to speak to him. Jesus just wills this boy to get well. And he's well. No sickness, no distance, no burden or boundary is too far for the authority of Jesus over sickness and health. In John chapter 5, he healed a paralyzed man. This man could not walk, could not get up. He was trying to get to this pool that would supposedly make him better, but he couldn't get there. And in John chapter 5, Jesus finds him and he says, pick up your mat and walk. And guess what? Paralyzed man, broken body, gets up, and he walks away. He's restored just with a word, just by willing this man to be well, the bones and the muscles and the, the ligaments and tendons that were in disrepair and useless and, and atrophied reform and gain strength, and he's able to stand and walk. Jesus has authority over sickness and health. Maybe the The most powerful demonstration of this authority is in John chapter 9 when he heals a man who had been blind from birth. 
there's a theological debate going on about this guy in the early parts of chapter 9 where Jesus' disciples are saying, now who do you think sinned and led to this guy's blindness? Like, did he sin somehow, like before he was even born? Or was it his parents that sinned, and so their son's blindness was a judgment on them, and now the son has to live with this blindness? They're having this debate. Whose sin is to blame for this man's blindness? And Jesus said, it was not this man's sin or his parents' sin, but so that the works of God might be displayed. And then he heals him. Now, this, he heals him in a different way. He doesn't say, see, and he doesn't just say, all right, you're good to go. He doesn't even just touch him and go like, all right, and transfer power in some way through his fingertips. No, he makes mud, he spits on the dirt and makes mud with it and smears it on the guy's eyes and then tells him to go and wash in a pool called Siloam, which means scent. I think the whole point of John chapter 9 is that Jesus is sent from God, and even that is a symbol of it. So he sends him to the pool of scent, and says, wash off the mud. And so the guy has to go find this pool and wash his eyes. And when he does, he can see. So in these variety of ways and situations, from a distance, close up, by speaking, by touching, by even processes where they have to obey some instructions, Jesus demonstrates over and over again his authority over sickness and health. He has authority over sickness and health. Now, Jesus doesn't always heal. He didn't heal everybody he met. You can be quite sure that throughout the, his journeys for three years in Galilee and Jerusalem and around, uh, around Judea, that he encountered many people who were ill that he did not heal. And there's mysterious providence at work here. Because we'd like to think Jesus would heal everybody he saw, but he didn't. We know that there were still sick people around, even while Jesus was in town or after he left. And the same is true today. Jesus has authority over sickness and health. Jesus is able to make somebody well just like that, but he, he doesn't always, does he? I believe sometimes he does. And I believe the scriptures call us to pray that God would heal. James chapter 5 says, if anyone of you is sick, let him go to the elders of the church and have them lay hands and, and pray that he would recover, right? So there, there is room in our faith and in our theology for asking God to heal sickness and trusting that he can. But there's also room in our theology for leaving it to his wisdom and going, I don't know and understand all the ins and outs of when he does heal and when he doesn't, or what he intends through our suffering in the meantime. But we know that he can heal, and sometimes he does. And when he doesn't, he's still good. He's still, he's still good. So the sick boy that he heals from a distance, this paralyzed man that he healed on the Sabbath, and then this blind man that he restored sight to, Jesus demonstrates his authority over sickness and health. Why should you believe in Jesus? He has authority over nature. He has authority over sickness and health. And finally, he has authority over life and death. He has authority over life and death. And John shows us that in, in chapter 11, 
where Jesus' friend, Lazarus, passes away. And in fact, Jesus waited just long enough for him to pass away before he went to town to meet with his family, which seems strange and perhaps cruel if you think that this is an act of vengeance or something on the part of Jesus. But in fact, it is an act of mercy because he intends to demonstrate his authority over life and death and to give his friends and his followers and the family members of Lazarus and, of course, Lazarus himself an unmistakable statement about who he is and why he is worthy to be trusted and to be believed in. And so Jesus goes after Lazarus has been dead about four days and he stands before the tomb and he says, Lazarus, come out. And out walks this dead man, this formerly dead man, wrapped in grave clothes. Jesus says, take the bindings off and uncover him so that he can see. Nobody has authority over life and death but God. It's just, that's just the way that it is. God is the author of life. He's the only one who can take it, in a sense, and he's the only one who can give it. And Jesus demonstrates through the raising of a dead man that he has authority over life and death. He gives it, he takes it away, he can give it again. This doesn't even get into his own resurrection from the dead. So those are the seven signs that John gives to us as reasons to believe in Jesus. He's going to tell us what to believe about Jesus in just a minute. But they demonstrate Jesus' authority over nature, over sickness and health, and over life and death. Christian, are you regularly aware of the authority of Jesus Christ in your life? When you consider the elements in nature, water and matter and wind, muscles and bones in human bodies, even hearts and vital organs, and the way that they all respond in perfect submission and obedience to the will of Jesus Christ, do you willingly submit yourself to him in the same way? Are you regularly seeking his will through his word? If you believe that Jesus has authority over you and you want to know how he wants you to live, you go to his word. Are you seeking him there? Are you meaningfully accountable to other brothers and sisters in Christ? Are you persistently approaching him in prayer, inviting him to mold your will and desires to his own? These are some of the ways that we can live in submission to his authority. When we come to his word, do we let it speak to us and challenge us and convict us of sin? Or do we find ways to explain it away? No, that's not what that really means. Or that's just, that's just not what I really intended. Are we letting God's word speak to our hearts and challenge us and convict us? We do well brothers and sisters, to recognize his authority over us and bow to it, to yield ourselves in submission to him. 
That is one major component of the Gospel of John. All of these signs point us to the fact that Jesus has authority over nature, over bodies, over life and death, over everything in the universe, and certainly over me and over you. So let's place ourselves under his authority. So, why should you believe? He's just given us all of these reasons, right? His, his authority over the universe, all these miraculous signs. But he's going to tell us what we should believe. He's not satisfied with your belief in a generic, choose-your-own-adventure Jesus. Indeed, Jesus himself doesn't give you that kind of flexibility. We all know of someone who you know, says they believe in Jesus or they respect him or something like that, but the Jesus they describe bears little resemblance to the one in the New Testament, right? Oh yeah, I'm into Jesus' teachings about love and compassion and mercy and things like that, but when he starts talking about all that God stuff or the miracles and things like that, like I don't really believe in any of that. You, get, you take Jesus as he is, as he presents himself to you, or you take no Jesus at all. That's the way that it is. So John is not satisfied with just, just believe whatever you want about Jesus. There's some clear content, there's a clear identity of Jesus that we must embrace. The, maybe the most famous example of this kind of Jesus fashioned after our own image is that of Thomas Jefferson, the, one of the founders of our nation, who spoke very highly of Jesus in some ways. He said that Jesus' natural endowments were great, his life correct and innocent. He was meek, benevolent, patient, firm, and of the sublimest eloquence. Right? And so he spoke highly of Jesus' character and how he loved people and his wisdom. But he rejected as ridiculous any suggestion of his miracles or his being divine in any real sense, and certainly of his resurrection from the dead. That's ridiculous. So he like kind of cut and pasted his own version of the New Testament. It had the teachings of Jesus, the kind of moral teachings of Jesus, if you will, that left out all the other stuff. That's not Jesus. That's not belief in Jesus. That doesn't count, right? That's not what he has in mind. That's not good enough. So two main things that John tells us we, he wants us to believe about Jesus Christ in that purpose statement. I've written these signs that you may believe. What? That Jesus is the Christ and the Son of God. He's the Christ and the Son of God. Now that word Christ is the Greek word for the Hebrew Messiah. So in the Old Testament, if you're reading and it speaks of a Messiah, that word is simply translated into Greek as Christ. Very same word. So it's not a name. Sometimes we, it, you get the sense that Christ is Jesus' last name, right? Christ, Jesus, if it were on an alphabetical list. That, that's not his name. His name is Jesus of Nazareth, if you need a last name, right? But Christ is his title. It means anointed one. The Old Testament scriptures promised that God would send his anointed servant to rescue and redeem his people. And they called that anointed servant Messiah or Christ. And John's firm argument throughout this book is that this Christ is none other than Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus is the Christ. He is the anointed servant of God sent to redeem and rescue his people. And I think when Jesus speaks throughout this gospel of being sent from God, this is what is in view. 
It is his role as the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one to bring healing to his people. One example of that is back in John chapter 3, verses 34 and 35, where he says in his conversation with Nicodemus, Oh, excuse me, we're on to, this is John the Baptist now speaking. He says, For he whom God has sent, that is Jesus, utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. So John the Baptist there speaks of Jesus as being sent from God and therefore having the very words of God and even the Spirit of God that he brings and gives without measure. In John chapter 5, verse 30, Jesus says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So Jesus is doing the will of the Father who sent him into the world with a mission. That theme is everywhere in John's gospel. I read to you two verses just now. I could read to you 50. It's everywhere. Jesus says, I am from the Father. I do the Father's will. I speak what the Father gives me. I only do what the Father tells me to do, right? Even in John chapter 9, as he healed that blind man, he said, I must be about the works of my Father while it is day. All throughout John's gospel, he says, I am doing the work of God because he sent me. He's the Christ. He's the one that God anointed and chose and sent to redeem his people. He's it. There's not multiple saviors to choose from. There's one. There's one hope for humankind in their brokenness and sinfulness and rebellion against God, and it's Jesus. He's the Christ. There's only one of them. And he's the son of God. And I think by this he really means that Jesus is God in human flesh. All right, so we have some very robust complex Trinitarian theology going on in John's gospel where we have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who comprise one being, one God. And he tells us back in John chapter 1, I'll actually invite you to turn here, go to John chapter 1, that Jesus is the incarnation, that is the flesh putting on, of God the Son the second person of this triune God, Father, Son, Spirit. Read with me verses 1 through 5. You don't have to read it aloud. Just follow along. 1 through 5, and then I'll skip down to verse 14. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And then down to verse 14, the word, that same word, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Friends, you could not have a higher vision of who Jesus Christ is 
than John gives us right here in these opening verses. Jesus is the eternal, uncreated Son of God, through whom the entire universe was created, who has come into the world as a human being. He became flesh and lived among us. Of course, the John and those who lived at this time saw with their own eyes his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father. We see his glory in different ways, in, in a more refracted ways, perhaps. As we see him at work in his church and in spreading of, of his kingdom throughout the world and in hearts transformed and broken lives and relationships repaired. We see his glory in different ways as we commune with him personally in times of worship and prayer and reading of his word. We see his glory in these different ways, though not face to face. It could not be clearer that what John is intending to tell us about Jesus is that he is God. Jesus makes seven, quote, I am statements throughout the Gospel of John, that lend further light to this. I'm just going to list them real quick. We're not going to go to each passage. He says that he is the bread of life. Right after he fed that multitude of thousands with bread and fish, he said, I am the true bread. Right? I am the true bread from heaven. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. Whoever walks in me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Right? I am the door for the sheep. The people of God that are being gathered in come through, through Jesus. I am the good shepherd. He leads his people. He calls his people by name and they recognize his voice. He pr protects them. I am the resurrection and the life. He said that in John 11, right before he raised Lazarus from the dead. The resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. He said that to his disciples just before he was going to go to the cross. He reminded them, don't worry. You can get to God because you know me. I am the, the way and the truth and the life. And then finally, I am the true vine. In that same speech to his disciples, I'm the vine, you are the branches. Remain in me, abide in me, stay connected to me, and you will bear fruit, right? And then there were a couple of these absolute I am statements, not I am such and such, fill in the blank, but I am, period. The, the, the best example of that is in John chapter 8, as he's arguing with some Pharisees and, uh, and other religious leaders, and they're kind of calling him names, and he calls them a few names back, uh, says that their father is the devil, and he's a liar just like, they're, they're a liar just like he is, right? It's a pretty heated exchange. And then he says of Abraham, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And they said to him, you're not even 40 years old and you're saying you've seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am, period. I am was the covenant name of God, Yahweh. Under the Old Covenant in the Old Testament Scriptures, that is how they recognized their God, by the name Yahweh, which meant to be, I am. When Moses said, who shall I tell them sent me? Remember what he said? Tell them I am sent you. 
That is how God was known. So when Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am, make no mistake, he is claiming to be God himself in human flesh. And lest we think there was confusion about that, the very next verse tells us, so they picked up stones to throw at him. Like, this guy is going to die right now as a blasphemer because he said he's God. That's what they took him to be saying. But Jesus hid himself, probably miraculously, and went out of the temple. Jesus is the Son of God. He is God in human flesh. Any version of Jesus that denies that fundamental aspect of his identity. Jesus is a great guy, a really good teacher, a wise philosopher, but he's not God, is false. It's not Christian faith. There are people who probably knock on your door about once a month who say they believe in Jesus and they deny that he's God. That's not Christian faith. John says, no, that's not who Jesus is. That's not true. That's not right. It's not good enough. Jesus says the same thing. Before Abraham was, I am. We got to have the lines that Jesus draws for himself. We can't take his hard lines and blur them because it makes us feel bad. We need the boundaries for Christian faith to be Christian faith. It's something less than that if it denies any of these core components of who Jesus is. And that's what John wants us to see throughout this gospel. Why does he write it? So we'll know who Jesus is. He's the Christ, the anointed servant that God sent to redeem and rescue his people. How did he do that? He's God in the flesh. Jesus is the only savior for sinners. Only God could uphold the law where we had failed, right? Because every human being was broken and sinful and messed it up. So only God himself could keep the law. And only a man could die as a representative for other human beings. And so God became a man in Jesus Christ and provided the only perfect sacrifice for sin by giving his life on a cross and rising to life again on the third day. That's what you must believe. Why believe? Man, Jesus has authority over nature and over sickness and health and over life and death. What do you need to believe? Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. But we got to pause here and hang out on the word belief. Because a lot of this hinges on what is meant by believing, right? If he says you're going to have life by believing, if he says this is the Jesus that you've got to believe in, what does he mean by believing? The belief that John's talking about isn't merely acknowledging the truth of some facts. It's deeper than that. I could say that Southwest Airlines exists, and it has pilots that fly planes all over the country every day. And I think they usually do so safely. I could say all that and think that it's true, probably. But I haven't really trusted in that Southwest pilot, haven't really believed in him in the sense that John means, until I have set myself down in a seat on his plane. When I get in that plane and I rest my body and my life, 
in this pilot's ability to safely get the plane from one town to the next. Until I've done that, I haven't really believed, right? I have, I, until I've entrusted to that pilot my very life and well-being. That's the kind of belief we're talking about here with Jesus. It's not just, yeah, those facts sound right to me. It's I have personally rested my life and future and eternity on what Jesus accomplished for me. There's a, an active trusting of Jesus that is required for this belief to really be what it is supposed to be. So we believe in Jesus as the Son of God and as the Christ. So finally, he tells us the result of believing, right? What's that? That by believing, you may have life in his name. And I think the life that he's talking about could be summed up in a few uh, snapshots throughout the Gospel of John. Back in John chapter 1, where John is giving us this outline or this overview, if you will, of Jesus and his incarnation, kind of introducing the themes he'll be unfolding throughout the gospel. In John chapter 1, verse 12, he says, to all, excuse me, beginning of verse 11, he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So what's the result of believing? You can be a child of God. Your orphaned, broken soul has a new home with God who welcomes you as his son or his daughter, adopts you as his own forever, and that's an unbreakable bond. You can be a child of God. Secondly, you can be saved from God's wrath. That's a message that's not very popular to preach today. We don't, want an, we don't like the idea of an angry God, right? God is this kind, benevolent, grandfatherly type who just wants to give good stuff to his kids and then send them off to their parents, right? So that they can, he'll spoil them and then send them away for a while, right? That's the image of God that people are comfortable with. But the God that we see in the scripture is a wrathful God because he's holy and he hates sin. And guess what? We're all sinners. That's bad news. John chapter 3, verse 35, 36 says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. That is a terrifying place to be. And it is the situation in which most people probably around us every day are living in all the time. They're under God's wrath. Unless they've repented of their sins and trusted in Jesus Christ as the only sacrifice for sin. But if you believe, if you rest yourself in Christ, like in that airline pilot's seat, you can be saved from God's wrath. John told us there, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Jesus himself said it just a few verses before that, and maybe the most famous verse in all the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. You can be saved 
from God's wrath if you'll just trust in Christ. Number three, as he just said, you can have eternal life. Life that goes on and on and on and on. Now, in a sense, you could say that everybody has eternal life. But those who have not repented of their sins and trusted in Jesus experience that eternal life in agony, separated from God and enduring his wrath against their sin. So the question is, is God's wrath against your sin going to be paid by you throughout eternity, or is it going to be paid by Jesus because you're resting on what he did? So if you trust in Jesus Christ, he forgives your sin and gives you eternal life. Back in John chapter 6, right after he fed this multitude of thousands, he said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. This is certain. The ones that the Father has entrusted to Jesus, they will come and he will not cast them out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. You don't get a stronger guarantee than that. God gave these people to me. My job is to keep them forever. And I will surely do it if they look at me and believe. If you believe in the Lord Jesus, you have eternal life. What incredible news. How stingy of us to keep it to ourselves because we're afraid of social awkwardness when I bring it up to a coworker, or somebody at Dunkin' Donuts near me. That's a personal experience. Should I, can I, eh, nah, too weird, right? This is really good news. That guy probably needed to hear it. Finally, if you, the result of believing, you can be on his team, on his missionary team. Look at his words to his disciples after he rose from the dead and he appeared to them all together in John chapter 20, verse 21. He said, as the Father has sent me, even so, I'm sending you. You believe in Jesus. You have your sins forgiven. You have eternal life. You're on his team, and he sends you out. You get to be my ambassador. He doesn't need us, right? He could save whoever he wanted just by snapping a finger. He doesn't have to snap a finger. He just has to will it, right? But that's not how he does it. He invites us to play on his team. He gives us a role, a part to play. Go, till the soil, plant the seed, water the soil, right? And God gives growth. That's what we get to do. We get to be on his team and play a role in advancing the kingdom of Jesus in this world. So, why believe? Because of all these signs that he did that point out the authority of Jesus over nature, over sickness and health, over life and death. What should you believe? You should believe, you must believe, that Jesus is the Christ. That is, he's the, the anointed one of God sent to redeem and rescue his people. And that he is God the Son in human flesh. He's God himself. Jesus is God come to rescue us. 
What's the result of believing? You're adopted as his child. You're saved from God's wrath. You have eternal life, and you get to play a part on his missionary team in the world, spreading the good news and advancing his kingdom. That's, in a nutshell, that's the message of John's gospel. That's what it's about. And in John's gospel, people had very disparate, that is contrasting responses to Jesus. Right? In response to his miraculous signs and his teachings about himself, people either believed in him and followed him, or they rejected him. And not just, eh, I don't think that's for me. They rejected him violently. And in fact, the rejection of him ended up with him hanging on a cross. No one seems to be ambivalent. There's no middle ground with Jesus. As we read through John's gospel, it's clear, stark responses. Belief or unbelief. It's very plain. Jesus himself said in John 9, 39, to the, the blind man that he just healed, for judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. In other words, I'm drawing a line. I'm showing you who I am, and you either get it or you don't. You either believe it or you don't believe it. And that's why I came. You have to make a choice about who Jesus is. He won't allow a middle-of-the-road, non-committal position. You may have heard the old saying, to be undecided is to be decided. It's true. There's no middle ground. Well, I, I like this part of Jesus, but not that part of Jesus. Sorry. You take Jesus as he is, or you don't take him at all. This is why John is so urgent in his writing. I have written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. So how do you answer that question? Right? Who is Jesus? How you answer that question is of enormous eternal importance. And if you say you believe, oh yeah, yeah I believe that, all that. I believe those facts about Jesus to be true. If you say you believe, and you could notch the right answer on a test card, let me ask you this. How does your life demonstrate it? How does your life show that you really believe in Jesus as the only Savior and as the Son of God? Are you living in glad submission to the authority of Jesus Christ, seeking him in his word, in prayer, in communion with the church? Are you conscious of and confident in Jesus' ability to carry you safely into his eternal kingdom? Are you resting in him like you would rest in the seat of an airline pilot, trusting him to get you safely home? Are you seeking out ways to serve others and to speak to them of the abundant life that Jesus Christ came to provide? Belief in Jesus isn't merely theoretical. It's not just a philosophy. And it's not just one compartment of your life, right? I got family, I got work, I got my hobbies, and then I got Jesus over here. So on Sunday for an hour, I go and worship Jesus, and the rest of my week, I can do whatever I want. That's not how this works. Saving belief in Jesus Christ is a humble, wholehearted reorientation of your life around the Lord and his kingdom. It becomes the fundamental definition of who you are. I wonder how you answer that question. Who are you? Tell us about yourself, right? What's the first thing you say? Talk about your job? Well, I've been a teacher, been a pastor, right? Been a social worker, 
I'm a husband, I'm a wife, I'm a mom, I'm a dad. Oh yeah, and somewhere down the list, yeah, I'm also, I'm also a Christian. Or is that the fundamental reality of who you are? I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. And that shapes everything else. That shapes how I work. That shapes how I parent. That shapes how I'm a spouse. In John eleven twenty five, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And then he asks point blank. This is Mary, I believe he's speaking to. Do you believe this? I pray that your answer is a resounding yes, I believe. And if it's not, it's not too late. While you hear this message, while you hear this call of good news, you can receive him and become a child of God. If you haven't done that, it's not too late. Talk to somebody after our service today.